Hi there, Kim Schmidt, Executive Editor of Farm Equipment here. Welcome to the latest episode of our Farm Equipment Podcast Series, Our Dealer Story. In this episode, Associate Research Editor Ben Thorpe sat down with Brian Carpenter, General Manager and Second Generation Owner of Champlain Valley Equipment during a break at the Dealership Mind Summit. But then I'm coming back and, you know, my mind, I, I had been active military from working on the border in Germany to a ready deployment force, you know, going 90 miles an hour in the military mode and all of a sudden to think farm equipment. <laughs> it was just such a radical change that, that uh, it's a wonder that it went as smooth as it did. That was Brian Carpenter talking about his transition from military life to working in his father's dealership in the 1990s. Before we head over to Brian, I wanted to thank our sponsor HBS Systems, a multi-generational company that for over 30 years has provided leading edge systems and software technology designed specifically for ag and construction equipment dealers. Thanks for making this podcast series possible. We'll jump into the conversation with Brian talking about how his father Russ got involved in the dealership back in 1970. I'm Brian Carpenter. I'm the general manager for Champlain Valley Equipment. We are a four-store uh, farm, uh, rural lifestyle, uh, light industrial equipment dealer in Vermont. We're headquartered out of Middlebury, Vermont. And uh, I run, uh, well, we have about 100 staff members and a uh, you know, great team of managers. And just, I try to provide the guidance. Run me through real quick some of the history of your dealership. I know that it was started by your father, Russ, right? Yes. My father, we were farmers, and in 1970, he had an opportunity to buy into a Ford tractor dealership. And we moved to Middlebury, which is where the Ford dealership was. We lived up over the dealership. It was in an old grain building and, and right along the railroad tracks. And uh, he built a new shop on it and had Gale equipment, new idea equipment, and Ford tractors. And my grandparents joined him in the, in the venture. And so it was Russell uh, Charles, my dad's was known as, and Russell F., my grandfather was known as. And at the time there was, you know, dealerships everywhere, scattered around the, the countryside. Uh, each little town had a few farm equipment dealers. And he ran it uh, from 1970 to 1993. My grandparents in the early 80s uh, retired and got out of the business. My father bought their shares out. And uh, I was in, the, in college at the time on a military scholarship and I, I went off overseas with the Army and hadn't really thought much about going into the business. And uh, in, in uh, 92, I had gotten married at that point. My father and mother were out visiting and he just asked the question, would you ever consider coming back and taking over the business? Mm. So gave my wife and I something to ponder and January 93, we took over the business. Mm. My father stayed as a mentor and, and uh, co-worker. Uh, we had a great time. He didn't retire fully until and I think three years, about 2015, something like that. Something that I wanted to ask about was your your father, you said he was bought into an opportunity to buy into a Ford tractor dealership. 
what was um, the series of decisions that led him to buy into that and, and kind of start this whole story in the beginning? So my father loved farming. He, he's, uh, he grew up on his grandfather's farm. Uh, his father was off in World War II, and he he wanted to farm, and and he went to the state university, and by then he was married. He went to to uh, he took classes in the evenings and. Um, did the field work during the day, and uh, then became a herdsman for a, for another farm. He wanted to own his own farm, mm-hmm. and at that time, uh, farming was you know everybody wanted to farm. It was a it was a pretty popular lifestyle in Vermont, mm. and so in the late '60s he was looking for a farm to buy, and could not find a farm to buy that he liked. Um, he was working, he worked a couple years selling tractors for another dealership while he was looking for a farm to buy. He wanted to be self-employed. And the dealer was friends of the, of the dealership, my, the owner of the dealership my father purchased. And he said, uh, he, he said, Jack, who was the owner, is looking to retire and sell. And so my father went and met with him, and if he couldn't be a farmer, if he couldn't find a farm to buy, he could at least stay involved in agriculture. And he, he found he was really good at sales, and so he took a chance. <laughs> and he started on, I don't know, it wasn't that many dollars. So, you know, we look now at the, at the uh, leverage and, and the capital needs, and he was incredibly over-leveraged to start. Mm-hmm. But... Things were done a lot different back then. Yeah, I mean, that would have been 1970? 70. Yeah. Would all the other dealerships in the area have been family dealerships too? Yes. Okay. So that back then it was family to family fighting over the, the little sales, and now we've got right. um, a lot more consolidation going on. Yeah, definitely. and there's a lot of corporate-owned dealers. How old would you have been then in 1970? Oh, so I would have been eight. Uh, okay. So if let's go back all the way back to those eight-year-old memories, if you have them, uh, do you remember at all what those those first couple of years were like with your dad oh, yeah. starting a dealership? Yeah, we we lived up over the dealership. Wow. Uh, the the grain bins were out behind the dealership for the, it was the Agway Feed Store, mm-hmm. uh, which was a big feed company in the <clears throat> in the Northeast back then. And uh, they had their feed and fertilizer across the tracks. We took a lot of our our deliveries by rail. We had our own rail siding. Uh, the uh, The shop was a dirt floored shop. Wow! Uh, and uh, he built my father. First thing he did was build a new shop, new modern service facility. Uh, it was a two story two story uh, building. Uh, you know, all wood. Wow. And I can can remember, uh, you know, my mother not wanting us to make too much noise because the customers were down below. Wow. <laughs> so That's crazy to think about. Oh, my gosh. That we, was literally a family dealership. That was a family dealership. And my father and mother bought uh, some land out in the country from there. And, and uh, my father, grandfather, and myself, we... We started building the house. Wow. So we moved into that house. We only lived up over the dealership for a year while we were building the house. But mm. when we moved, when we moved in. It was four miles out. You know. Sure. It's not a big town, so it doesn't take long to get out into <laughs> the country. Yeah. 
I want to say it's inspiring. I've never heard of anybody, um, maybe this shows generational difference, but nobody from my generation is, is building, physically building their own business and living there and, and really putting a lot of attentive care into that. So that's, that's impressive to hear, definitely. Yeah, we talked sweat equity. It was really, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, my father, uh, you know, he was a worker and, and uh, I think people respected him for that. Uh, he, he, uh, anyway, he set his mind to it and we didn't take a lot of family vacations because, mm. you know, he was a, he was a hands-on operator. Uh, I would say uh, delegation was probably not his strongest point. And, <laughs> and uh, that was where, when the, when the generational passing, I think it was one of the things that, that I brought to the table was the, the skills of delegation mm -hmm. and uh, building that next next level of the infrastructure. That's kind of what I wanted, wanted to lead into was, so your father had this very specific way of doing things and it, it worked definitely in 1970, I'm imagining. And then when you took over, there's that generational passing. And so um, I just out of curiosity, when did you replace the dirt floors? Did you ever? Well, my father had, uh, he, he had already built a new facility okay. when I came in. They, they had built it uh, just two years before I came back. Okay. And uh, it was a smaller facility than what we have now. We've added on to it four or five times. Uh, but it was a nice modern facility. Okay. He had an opportunity to sell his building and, and move into a different facility. He had actually briefly merged with the Case IH dealer oh. when when Ford and New Holland went together. Mm -hmm. And their styles of doing business were so radically different that they very quickly realized that that was a mistake mm -hmm. and they separated back into individual silos, mm -hmm. different businesses. And uh, at that time, my father built a new facility. Mm -hmm. And so it was within a new facility, more modern, efficient facility that I cut my teeth and, yeah. and got started. Do you remember at all as a child, your dad, I mean, if you helped him build the house, I imagine you were helping him on the dealership a little bit too. Um, do you have any, did he do that a lot? Did he have you guys around like interacting with customers at all? Oh, I, I, I made a lot of my spending money uh, <laughs> through assembling equipment, uh, you know, assembling spreaders, assembling uh, mower conditioners, doing that type of stuff, mm -hmm. and uh, and my father financed me on a, a Ford garden tractor that I started a, a little uh, lawn mowing business with. Oh, cool! So I had to make my payments to my dad. <laughs> uh, so you know, he was teaching me business at the same time, but I also learned, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to 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 become skilled in handling wrenches and and understanding mechanical. Uh, you know, growing my mechanical aptitude, mm. and uh, you know, wasn't without wasn't without issues. I can remember one time because the mower conditioners came in on on rail and they were standing up vertically. I was pretty young, and I can remember trying to let one down, and, and it slipped, and so the chain bent the the sheet metal pretty good. So I learned, uh, you know, how how you need a second. Uh, means of of holding things mm -hmm. and, and just you know just being careful that it's dangerous i mean i was lucky i wasn't under it 
you know, learned a lot of those things either on the farm or around the around the business. Things sure. that I preach to all the employees now when we talk <laughs> safety. It was good memories. My father he provided me an opportunity, and then as I grew older, he gave me an opportunity. I, I helped him on on putting together projections, and so I started working more some in the office when I was in college, mm -hmm. helping him a little bit. Did you end up bringing your own kids in when they were little to have you? Uh, Don't you hand them a wrench at age eight and say, "Go fix stuff." You know, they they didn't do that type of stuff. They helped more in the in the parts and in marketing and different things. Uh, you know, they're both uh, very good with computers, and so they did a lot of those types of activities. Uh, mm. My wife and I have a, a daughter who is a marine biologist, and a son who is studying. Uh, Biophysics, biochem, he's wow. not, not quite sure. So they both appear to be going down the scientific path. Wow. Uh, doesn't mean they can't circle back to agriculture, but uh, <laughs> you know, I was, I was a career military uh, army guy. And, and oh, yeah. uh, so uh, it, it's too early to judge, but I, I'm not putting any pressure on them. Sure. Let them find their own path. Mm -hmm. One summer, my son was the shipping and receiving person uh, uh, we we had an unfortunate uh, death of our ship and, re and receiving right. guy. He had cancer, and and uh, you know so my son filled in and did that for the summer. And so they've both had the experience of working within the business. Sure. So there's still a chance. Like if they ever came back, they would know what's going on. Oh yeah, yeah. They know what's going on, uh, and they're both very bright. Yeah. Both of my junior partners are are capable, and and uh, you know they're. They're enough younger than me that they could carry the business for another a decade or more. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, frankly, when we talk, uh, you know, out 25 years, we don't have a plan that takes us that far out sure. now. And that's kind of what uh, we we get together and and you know, beat around ideas. But until we see, we all have kids about the same age. Mm -hmm. Until we see if any of those kids are, have an interest in it, uh, we're, we're really not at, at the point where we want to talk about potentially selling or doing anything like that. Because frankly, I, I think we all would like to be able to pass it on to someone sure. of our choosing and, and keep, keep some of what we've built intact. Because once you sell, you have no control over that. That is for sure, yeah. So you're thinking you want to keep it in the family? I, I keep it at least with people that we know, um, and you know maybe be uh, uh, silent partners with that. Mm -hmm. For sure, and I think definitely if that's one of your strengths, that's a really good idea to keep it with that close knit unity. Maybe if you if you lost some of it to maybe a cor more corporate spirit, that might that might take away some of what's kept you so strong in Vermont for so long. Yeah, and Vermont is a, an interesting market. It's a small market. You have to be able to do a lot of different things in order to get the volume. Mm -hmm. You know, frankly, uh, I think that the manufacturers really struggle in markets like ours to okay. think that we could be as viable as we are and have just one line. It, it, it just, you could never get those types of volumes unless you're the cat dealer. You know, even the deer dealers look for other lines to fill in. I think uh, that the Vermont agricultural scene will will continue to, to change, but it will stay pretty constant. Right. So definitely a family dealership. It's a family dealership. And mm. uh, our, we have two other partners. They're both local dealerships that we purchased, and uh, the family that owned them offered uh, one of them uh, bought in, and another one, the, the senior salesman, 
bought in when we bought that dealership. And so we have uh, two junior partners in the business. I had read that you guys started with a lot of local competition. You had like 15 other dealerships around you, and now it's only down to like two or three. Or There's something. two. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that's why I was saying, you know, it was there were dealerships everywhere. And a lot of them were, were small, single line, but uh, there were some sec very successful dealerships in the, in the area. Um, it was uh, the 90s that really weeded out the dealers. Uh, the 90s were really hard for agriculture in our area. Mm. You know, there was, when I took over, there were still seven pretty thriving dealerships, or, or you know, viable dealerships, I would call it. Uh, none of us were thriving, maybe the John Deere dealer, but uh, it, was a, it was a dogfight on every sale. Um, there would be three, four dealers quoting every, every tractor deal, okay. every manure spreader deal. It was just, it was crazy. And uh, the margins were, were pencil thin. Um, there wasn't enough parts and service business to absorb yourself. And, uh, you know, I really decided we had to do something. Uh, it was a dogfight. We got through it. Uh, and we, that's when we looked to buy out another dealership and, and try to get some economies of scale and, and mm -hmm. not have uh, every major competitor on every deal. <laughs> that does, yeah, that sounds pretty brutal. Yeah. So, so the move you made to combat all of that, the competition was to start absorbing nearby guys. Yes. You guys had... Um, Green Mountain Tractor? We bought, that was our first acquisition. Mm -hmm. We bought the competitor across town. They, they had, uh, we, were, we were New Holland, we were the New Holland tractors. They had the New Holland equipment. That was probably a big part of, of uh, what drove my thought process was we needed to consolidate New Holland. They also had the Case IH tractor, and this mm -hmm. was before New Holland in case IH came together. Okay, sure. But it was fortuitous because when we purchased them, we, we not only got the New Holland hay and forage product lines and skid lines, but we also got the uh, Case IH line and they were the Kubota dealer. We got Kubota. Oh, wow. And so uh, through that acquisition, we got some significant uh, lines and Kuhn. Mm. So they had probably they had a better lineup of, of equipment lines than we did. Mm. You know, we were maybe just more aggressive and, and fought harder. We'll get back to the Champlain Valley equipment story in a minute, but first I wanted to say thanks to HBS Systems, the sponsors of the series. To learn more about HBS's equipment dealership management systems, visit www.hbssystems.com. After that, head over to farm-equipment.com for the latest industry news. Now back to the story of Champlain Valley Equipment and how the Vermont dealership has grown and evolved over the years, including working with dealership consultant Dr. Jim Weber and the guidance other dealers have provided through Brian's 20 Group. So yeah, you guys, they had maybe the better on the ground, so you guys had the, the mental tactics. Exactly. Cool. You kind of outmaneuvered them a little bit. Yeah, we had the techs. We had, you know, we had a, we had a really good team. People, people liked doing business with us, but we didn't have, at the time, uh, you know, Deer and Case had the big, the, the high horsepower tractors. Uh, Ford New Holland did not have a high horsepower tractor at that point. We had just, actually, we just gotten the Genesis in the 90s. We started to break into that market, but 
Uh, prior to that, we didn't even have a high horsepower tractor. Mm. So uh, it's amazing uh, the way it went. Uh, it, some of it had to do with uh, just the timing. Uh, there was a lot of, of older owners and they didn't necessarily have family members who were interested in, in taking over. And when I approached them, planted the seed, the seed grew over a period of a year or two and we were able to come together, so it, it worked. So your strength as a family kind of, because if they didn't have that strength as a family, then your, your strength as a family was kind of a, a counterweight against them a little bit. It, it was, the fact that it was my father and myself, and we had, you know, at that time I'm in my 30s, and, and uh, you know, people can see that we have a long-term uh, interest in the business. We're gonna keep going for a long time, and, and they're trying to figure out what their exit strategy is, and, it, and we offered them an exit strategy. And it, it worked out for us. Now, that's actually something I wanted to circle back to, your military history, that you were in the military for a while. You, you weren't really thinking about getting back into farm equipment, but it kind of it appeared, and it seems like it's done very well for you. How was that transition from military to agriculture? I can't, I can't imagine it's quite a, a more normal one or an easy one. <laughs> I, you know, I think it was easier for me than my employees, the staff, because, uh, you know, I was used to, I was an officer and I was used to commanding. I had already commanded um, on active duty and uh, this was during the Cold War. We were over oh, yeah. uh, along the border and it took a little bit to soften the edges some mm -hmm. and, and uh, time certainly helped with that. But I think I had some staff that, that probably found it more challenging than I did. I was able to stay involved with the military through joining the, the Vermont Army Guard. Mm -hmm. And that uh, allowed me to continue that profession at the same time. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it worked uh, for me to be able to get that fix of, of you know, I, I was a scholarship student, so I'd worn a a uniform by the time I came back into the into the company I had already worn a uniform for 13 years so wow. okay. I was um, wanting to make sure I didn't give all that all that effort that I'd put into it up I guess mm -hmm. and I imagine that you it brought some something to the dealership that made you guys strong I think so I I think uh, you know number one the military does a phenomenal job with leadership training, mm -hmm. and and there's there's no doubt that that helped me. Um, I think it helped strengthen me, my resolve, uh, belief that if you have a good plan and execute that plan, that sooner or later, you know, good things will happen. Uh, and uh, the knowledge that that it was all in the plan, mm -hmm. and and that you got to do your homework, and you've got to consider all the options weigh them appropriately and, and make an informed, viable plan. And so um, it was that training, I think, that helped me significantly in my profession as a businessman. So then maybe you're the greatest advocate or the greatest example of people hiring out of the armed forces into the industry because of that, I've heard a lot of talk about that being a, a strength you can really bring to a dealership. It really is. Uh, you know, I, I've had uh, very good luck hiring uh, former military people over the years. My father was a believer in it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we don't have a, necessarily a military uh, background in my family. Uh, my grandfather served in World War II, but my father was already married with kids when Vietnam came along. And so 
Uh, we don't have a tradition of that, but he, but he certainly is a believer in, in what that brings. And, and uh, he started hiring former military retirees and they're punctual, mm -hmm. they have good work ethic. Most of them understand the chain of command. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of things that they can bring to the table that have value in setting an example for in a good positive culture within your business. That's all great stuff. And I think that's stuff that a lot of dealerships would benefit from definitely is some, some good chain of authority and a lot of, a lot of understanding for structure can really help. But you did mention that there was, there was a transition period. You know, you were coming out of the military, you're not really sure what you're doing. What were some things maybe that you did to help the transition and make your military benefits that you brought from the armed forces apply to the dealership? What were some things maybe that you did? I think one of the things was getting the team on board. Mm -hmm. And so we started uh, quarterly having breakfast meetings with all the staff and open book management and telling them the things that we needed to do to be successful. And through sharing that and sharing the, the, the vision allowing them to understand where we were heading, the why uh, of what we needed to do to, to fulfill that plan. And, and we started getting the, the, the team on board uh, even more so. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, we did that quarterly. We'd take them all out to breakfast. I would give a briefing. I, one of the things I learned in the military, we'd already, by that point, the military was computerized. Uh, by the time I got off active duty, and we use PowerPoint quite a bit. And so go. I would do a PowerPoint presentation to the staff. And, uh, you know, it was gee whiz stuff for small town Vermont at the time. For sure. But uh, it, it, really, it really helped inform them and give them a vision of where we were headed. And I think that helped bring the crew together. And that was just part of, the, part of the change. The biggest change, I think, was just having some having a fresh set of eyes and new energy saying we can win this battle of, of attrition because it really was a war of attrition at the time. Mm. And definitely, if, especially if you were starting with so many, it's come down to so few. It's, I think it's safe to say you guys won that battle of attrition. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're the last family-owned business uh, in the area. At the time, there were, most of the, of the children of the families that owned the business grew up either with me or just behind me. And... and uh, the John Deere dealer sold out last year uh, to, you know, owners outside the area. Mm -hmm. And so we're the last locally owned company in Vermont. How do you see, especially if you guys are the last family oriented one and, and you, have, you have children of your own that you're, maybe aren't exactly in the, in the industry, but you're, maybe you're bringing in more young people. What are some practices or some things you look for when hiring that next generation to try to build up, if it's not literal family, if it's a kind of family to, to lead on the history of the dealership? Yeah, that's tough. You know, the, probably the hardest thing is, is hiring staff mm. that, that we're, I, I believe the whole industry is challenged with it. It's not just technicians. It goes down to uh, your managers, your sales staff. It's, it is probably the most difficult thing. And, and I can't say that we have a litmus test that works. You know, we have failures in hiring staff. Sure. But I think one of the things that we do is uh, if, if the staff isn't making it, is we, we have a amicable separation fairly early on. Mm -hmm. uh, we're looking for people who buy in, who, you know, our onboarding process we're working on, trying to improve that, making sure they understand the history, the 
you know, what's the culture of our dealership and trying to get them to adopt that culture early on. And if there is not an apparent um, love for the culture, it's, it, it, you know, usually reflects fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And so we're uh, probably more challenged in that area than, than you would you would think looking at us, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I would suspect that that's generally across the industry. And I, I have heard that's, that's something that, that you hear a lot, especially at roundtables like today, people talk about high turnover rates with the younger generation or people not really getting the mindset. Um, what are some things that maybe you guys do to try to get, get people into the, into the culture of it all, especially bringing in young people? We continue to uh, push on, on uh, you know, 30, 90 day counseling reviews. It's really not counseling, it's a review. We, we do that, uh, we're improving our onboarding process, getting them working with a, a mentor, a, a sponsor early on, uh, somebody who can answer their questions. One of the worst things I think that happens is you hire someone, you throw them in, and, and especially if you hire them when it's busy and, and then you, neglect them and pretty soon they, they, they're floundering. And, and so yeah. making sure that, um, because a lot of times the manager's so busy, uh, doesn't mean that someone, that another staff member can't be their, their mentor and, and trainer and, and sponsor because you know on the ground training is the most important part. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to do things like that, that uh, gives them some peer support and, and I watched it with my son's school that now, you know, first year programs in college are really getting a lot of focus in how they integrate that student and uh, make them a part of a team. And so the the people who live on their floor, they'll take some of their classes together. And so they're seeing them a lot and they're doing um, after class activities, maybe it's some intramurals and, and whatnot. And they have some competition, but things to, to help bond them. And so we're doing, we try to do that, those types of activities, and we're trying to adopt that. Uh, and frankly, we did that in the military. We pair a, a, a new uh, private up with a with a corporal or someone who could could mentor them and be their first go-to. I think we're having better success now that we have a focus on it. And before, it just we didn't have a focus on it. We were tr- we were growing, and there were so many. Um, so many activities on a daily basis that you just, you know, you wondered if you had enough time to do it all. And so the realization that you don't have enough time and mm-hmm. that you've got you to pass some of that down the ladder a little bit mm-hmm. and charge them and maybe give them a little bit more guidance on how to bring that person on. So um, I, I do feel like that's something that, that's starting to, to pay some dividends. Uh, I've definitely heard a lot of people talk about the power of having a mentor, having someone above you in the industry kind of lead you through the, the early steps. That's something that I've even been hearing. I know I keep coming back to the roundtables, but that's something that I've gotten a lot out of and, and knowing what people are talking about. I hear a lot of people talking about the strength of, of having a mentorship program as soon as someone comes in the door, assigning them to someone else to go to ask questions. You mentioned in one of your old interviews with Farm Equipment that you guys try to be a high premium quality dealer. You want every interaction to be the highest possible quality as opposed yeah. to being like, I guess, quality versus quantity dealership. And that's that's a mindset that I found interesting. Yeah, we've never done well at selling <laughs> selling just a piece of iron. If we're competing just on price, then 
it doesn't link that customer to you. So the next time it's all about price again. Mm-hmm. And we tried doing good, better, best. And we found that just selling the good or adequate was, wasn't something that we really could, could succeed at. Mm. And, you know, the, the tractor supply, the, the internet marketer, there was, there was so many other competitors to just get the low dollar that we got out of that. We, so we, number one, we're promoting premium brands and we're setting our price and saying, this is what we need to be able to provide you the, the parts and service support after the fact that you would like. Mm. Um, and then we just really try to focus on making that interaction a pleasant, interaction something that they enjoy doing business with and that they want to come back you know they feel like uh, the business cares about their business that the uh, the employees that they're dealing with the staff they're dealing with uh, are knowledgeable we've gone to having uh, uh, some specialization amongst the staff Mm -hmm. our sales staff now uh, early on, as we continued to grow, the sales staff could sell everything. You could sell everything from a small BX Kubota all the way up to a high horsepower tractor or uh, a self-propelled forage harvester. And what, as we continued to grow, we found is that that those are different uh, customer bases. There's different uh, needs for those customers. There's a lot of different knowledge and understanding, and it's just too much to ask one guy to know all of that. And mm-hmm. so we've divided our staff. And so we have staff that does the light construction, which we're a Bobcat dealer. Uh, we have staff that de- does the rural outdoor lifestyles, um, the Kubotas and the small New Hollands. And um, then we have staff who does the, the commercial ag. Mm. And there is some crossover, but we're trying to focus the staff so that they, we can afford to send them and they can retain the knowledge you know, that they get from the training and uh, can make sure that that's a premium experience for the customer. I had heard recently from somebody that um, they had another dealership in Wisconsin had a mentality of every staff member should have some aspect of sales training because every interaction with the customer has some sort of sales aspect. There's always something you can pitch them on or, or bring them into the culture a little bit more on. So that's, that's something that I think um, I see reflected in what you're saying, definitely. Yeah, yeah and actually uh, we started, uh, our, my partner Josh Provost, he started doing some staff training recently uh, and this year's staff training is going to be on phone etiquette and, mm-hmm. and you know customer service etiquette. And uh, it's just it's not that you the, you don't feel that people have those skills, but sustainment training, making sure that you're always sharpening those skills and honing them and doing better and bringing everybody up a little level, you know, to the next level, is really what we're focused on. You know, that's part of that that interaction and the sales training of everyone. So all the parts people and even the technicians will get some of that training. I'm Jackson Licko, Precision Farming Dealer Magazine. If you want to be more successful in precision ag sales, service, and support, join us for the annual Precision Farming Dealer Summit, co-located with the National No-Tillage Conference. 
Check out more information at PrecisionSummit.com. And now back to the Our Dealer Story podcast. You talked about, and this is funny because you already mentioned that your dad wasn't very good at delegation. How important is delegation to you guys then? Well, now with uh, we're not only spread with the quantity of staff, but we have it's three hours to, to one of the stores. And without having, uh, you just can't supervise on a daily basis mm-hmm. all the things that you would need to be able to supervise. Uh, there's too much going on. The demands... You know, just training demands for myself, um, you know, meeting with all the manufacturers. Uh, there's not enough hours in the day where I could even pretend to supervise everybody, <laughs> let alone be effective at supervising everyone. Sure. And so uh, for us to have grown to this level, we had, you know, I had to, to attract real quality people who I then entrusted with with that authority and um, providing the, give them the guidance and let, and and then just follow up with them. And I try to follow up with my next tier guys uh, quite frequently, at least several days a week, and if if not, several times during a day. Mm. It depends on what's going on. Sure. Um, but you know, even within our my own store, I I manage one of the stores. Um, I've tried both. Uh, hiring a manager for the store and then managing it myself, and, and if it, unless it was my father doing it, I, I, I think with me being in the store, uh, it, it's really tough for somebody to feel like they're the store manager because customers will walk right by them because they mm-hmm. know that I'm there. So, so it was really set them up for failure yeah. to, to not have that a real true authority because you know people are going to walk by them. Mm. So I so I'm running the, the, the Middlebury store, and you know my parts and service managers within that store, I check in with them, make sure they have guidance, ask them if they have questions, but they run their departments, mm. and you know that's a pretty significant change from when I first took over when you know basically making all the priorities myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm, now I'm not taking the customer calls. I don't know the particular situations and it would be presumptuous for me to feel that I could go in and tell them how to do their, run their departments. Sure. We, but we have checks and balances and it, and it works and, and I think we all work pretty well as a team. And that's good. That's, if you can say that to me, that's a good thing to know if you're that confident in it, that shows. Yeah. Um, taking over from your father, how has your role changed maybe from yeah. the beginning part? I'm sure it's been a dramatic change. Yeah, when I came back, we, it was 10 of us. And, and I, was, <laughs> I was the store manager, I was the service manager. Uh, this, my brother-in-law was the salesman. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we started selling a little bit more, fairly short order, uh, he was always frustrated, it, it, you know, it, um, sell. He, he was a good salesman. He was great with product knowledge and everything, but he was our best tech. Mm. And so I asked him if he would go back to turning wrenches so that we could we could support more growth. So then I became the only salesman. So I was the store manager, service manager, and our salesman. Wow. And that's when I decided the only way I could do sales was if I had everything all planned out. And so very early on, within a couple of years of taking over the business, everything was pre-priced. And when customers called, I had a price, you know, mm. the, the compact tractors that were all pre-priced, the, 
rotary cutters, blades, everything was pre-priced. And so, um, you know, and I would tell them right up front, this is what I, this is what it will sell it for. This is what I need to get. And I think customers appreciated that. That was early on in that, in uh, the days of, of, you know, some auto dealers go trying that too. And mm -hmm. I got my idea through the auto industry. And, and you know, it was funny because I think some deals that we left money on the table, but for the vast majority of the deals, customers realized if, if I'd already got given that thought to it, that it was probably a fair price. Sure. And I would tell them that, I think it's fair. You can shop and you know, I'm sure you're gonna find cheaper, but I'd like your business. And this is what I need to be able to take care of you. Mm -hmm. it, and it worked, and we st we still do that to this day. Great, and so that so that's how it was then. What are you doing now? Well, now I I work on the big deals with the salesman. Mm -hmm. I don't do any sales myself. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm I'm working with all the manufacturers. I'm the I put the I buy all the used with the support of of a couple other uh, sales managers. Uh, we have product sales managers, hmm. and then we look at the sale, the uh, trades together. So, you know, the used was an area that we got. I got into a little trouble. Had too much money in used. wasn't weren't uh, We weren't turning them quick enough, and uh, we were over reconditioning some of the used. Uh, through our twenty group discussions, best practices, we started buying used a lot differently. Hmm. Uh, we do not have a used problem now. Um, so I, a lot of my day is involved with that, either working on the larger deals, if somebody's on a high horsepower tractor, self-propelled forage harvester, or anything like that, I'll spend a lot of time, I'll meet with the customers. I meet with our top customers, so I'd like to make sure they all know who I am, we, you know, I'll talk to them. Mm -hmm. Some of them will call me, I'll get the salesman who typically calls on them into the deal. Uh, but they'll want to hear, some of the customers will want to hear from me and, and know that that is our deal. Mm -hmm. It's funny. Uh, so, a, you know, a lot of my days taken up with, with working on, on some sales activity or customer issues. I, I like to get involved uh, fairly early on if we have a customer issue and make sure we take care of the customer. Mm. Do you find that you miss sales at all? If you started so heavy in that role, I've heard that before. Yeah, no, I love sales. Um, you know, one of one of our twenty group members uh, and a friend, Charlie Huber, talks about. Uh, you know, I'm just a salesman. I can remember when you know first meeting him, and he'd he'd passed on daily uh, oversight of the business at that point, and he he just loved doing sales, and I, I could see myself doing that. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, just passing on and, and taking over. Ag sales and, and you know spending time out calling on our some of our top tier customers. Hmm. Uh, that's certainly one of the more enjoyable parts of the business. Sure, you get an opportunity to, to learn about other people's businesses and uh, help them succeed. Be a, a partner with them, and I think that's how they see us. You had mentioned the dealership peer groups as a place that you. I mean, just now you mentioned uh, that you you get a lot of stuff from that. Has has that something that you've been focusing on since you started kind of taking a stronger role in the dealership? Yeah, I, I, uh, I think it was 2000 or 2001, I joined uh, Dr. Weber's 20 group. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has uh, has been, you know, integral part of my professional development. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, a, he's a great guy to sound ideas off from. Uh, certainly as we were in growth mode, uh, 
getting him to, to look at financials and, and make sure that uh, some of the assumptions, you know, challenge my assumptions, uh, put together uh, pro formas. Uh, and, and then just uh, talk about as the business grows, what are the different needs? And, and, and he had at that point already worked with others that had gone through it. And so there was a, there was a lot of, of uh, learning that, that was made much easier mm-hmm. than, the, than the school of hard knocks. Oh, yeah, I bet. You know, and, and it certainly costs a lot less. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we don't meet as often as we used to, but I still enjoy it, and I, I really appreciate the, the group of dealers that I've come to be very close with over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, at any time, you can pick up the phone and call one of them and, and bounce an idea off them, and I think there's a lot of strength in that. Even if you're not literally with your family, you have a family of dealers that you can tap into. Right. Something, and this is just my own personal curiosity, what is it like taking over a business from your father? Because my father owns his own small business, and I couldn't even imagine what that process would begin to be like. Yeah, you know, it was hard. It, it, was, it, it was a labor of love. Uh, my father and I, uh, you know, I'm an only son. Uh, but... Uh, I think it was. I think it was hard. It was. It was one of those things. Sometimes you're you're walking on eggshells because you know you want to change something, but you know maybe it meant a lot to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, you know, I, I, my father, I think was was ready for me to take over. Sure. To just go in and take over would have been more difficult. Um, I think we navigated it pretty well. Doesn't mean there weren't times where, where. There were hard feelings on on one side or the other because, you know, what I wanted to do was different or, mm-hmm. or vice versa, and um, and so uh, you know, trying to make sure it was it, we're a very close family, and trying to make sure I didn't hurt his feelings and making changes was probably the was the hardest part, sure. and, and uh, uh, you know, I I. Uh, I hope I did him proud. I'm sure you did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it was uh, it was interesting, especially not having worked before. I, I walked in. You know, part of the deal was I, I'm coming out of of active duty. My next job, I was going to go be a, a general's aide, and uh, and when he when he threw the threw the uh, opportunity out there, and my wife and I talked about it. And we thought it, that it was the right thing to do, but then I'm coming back, and you know, my mind—I I had been active military from working on the border in Germany to a ready deployment force, and you know, going 90 miles an hour in the military mode, and then all of a sudden to think farm equipment—it <laughs> was just such a radical change that, that uh, it's a wonder that it went as smooth as it did. I think uh, thanks to the help of my father's mentorship, uh, the understanding of, of our staff and, and our customers, uh, you know, and, and it, it, uh, we made it through it. Yeah. It, they're definitely not complementary cultures. Well, it seemed to do something wonderful for you guys because you're here and you're so strong and, and you're someone that I think people in the industry look up to for sure. And so I, I think definitely something must have worked. Some point of the transition, it went really well. Yeah, yeah, you know, God bless. <laughs> thanks so much to Brian for taking the time to sit down and share their story with us. And another thanks to HBS Systems for making this podcast possible. I'd love to get your feedback on the new series. 
So drop me a line at kschmidt at lestermedia.com. You can subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn Radio. This will ensure you'll be alerted as soon as new episodes are made. Thanks for joining us for this one-on-one conversation with Brian Carpenter. Until next time, I'm Kim Schmidt, signing out of the Our Dealer Story Podcast.